<laughs> What's up, everybody? This is J.J. Martinez. And this is Big Jeff. We are Beauty and the Beast Mode. We are. Getting ready for episode 22. Today is September 12th, 2016, and this is another Faces in the Crowd episode. I'm a New Yorker. Yeye was born in New York, then moved to Florida when he was a little kid, so I cannot let him claim New York as his home. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) We are joined today by two other New Yorkers, Nick DiPaolo, who's a retired NYPD officer, and Charlie and Mordino, who's a stock trader for Gruntle and Company. Both Nick and Charlie will be walking us through their stories about growing up in New York, as well as their experience on September 11th, 2001. So, Nick, please introduce yourself. Say hello to the peeps. Hello, peeps. Nick DiPaolo here. Charlie? Hey, I'm Charles. Thanks for having me. I was just saying, not to be confused with uh, Nick DiPaolo, the comedian, right? right but he is Nick DiPaolo, and he, he is, is a comedian. A comedian! <laughs> yes, that's right. We were talking about that earlier, his experiences on the stage. That's right. That's pretty awesome. So, Faces in the Crowd, as our listeners know, uh, is an interview episode for us. So, we normally like to start off from the beginning somewhat. So, Nick, if you can just kind of let us know where you grew up, where you were born, where you grew up, a little bit about your uh, history. All right. Uh, Well, I was born in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, Lived there until the age of five, then moved out to Long Island. And lived there pretty much the rest of my life until I was 53 and uh, moved down here to Florida. Um, Only child, no brothers, no sisters. Great... uh, Great childhood, lots of friends, great place to grow up. I mean, you know, living down there, yep. uh, up there, um, what a great place that was uh, back then uh, to be a kid and always people around and stuff like that. Uh, became, a <clears throat> became a New York City police officer in 1988 and uh, retired in 2008 and uh, moved down here to Jacksonville in uh, October 2011. And now, like you guys, work uh, at the Wounded Warrior Project. Nice. Charlie, how about you? Hey, so I'm Charles Amordino, and uh, I lived in New York pretty much most of my life up until I was about 33. I was born on Long Island and moved all around like a little bit of a gypsy, you know, finally winded up uh, ultimately in Nassau County. Uh, my dad was a Wall Street executive, my mom was a beauty queen, and I was one of three kids. And, you know, basically my brother and sister had broken their spirits, so I got a chance to do really whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> and follow my grandfather and my father's trend. I got into the stock market at a young age in my late teens after getting thrown out of high school and then thrown out of college, which is another story for another day, and basically tried to build a career doing that. Until finally I moved down here about 2003, and here being Jacksonville, Florida, and I've been here ever since. Nice. So... Jeff mentioned uh, today being September 12th and the fact that you guys moved from, from New York to Florida. And we wanted to 
talk about your experiences on 9-11 uh, and we'll get there. But could you talk about a little bit about how you lived as a New Yorker, maybe more in your adulthood before 9-11, some of those experiences, how the city was, and then we'll get to that day and talk a little bit more about that. And even like growing up and how the city may have changed or where you're from, Long Island, uh, changed from when you were a kid and growing up. I mean, so when I was young, Long Island was broken into two counties, Nassau and Suffolk County. So my parents had lived in a town called Freeport, so the young town, big port city sort of thing, and I was born in a hospital close to the hospital center in South Nassau. And they had a nice little place. They were, it was their first trip out to the suburbs. They lived in Brooklyn initially. When I came along, basically, there were too many kids for the house. So they went all the way out to Suffolk County in the 70s, which meant there was nothing there. You know, they had a nice house, nice and cheap. And uh, my father commuted by an hour and 40 minutes each way into the city. So he was, what was IT back then uh, as an executive uh, on Wall Street? So IT back then was punch cards and real computers and stuff <laughs> like that. So, you know, microfiche viewers. We used a little magnifier to watch that sort of stuff. And uh, we lived in Suffolk County out there for a long time until my father really started to become more of a success on Wall Street. They gave him a partner, and they bought an old movie star mansion in Baldwin, Loretta Young. She was a 1930 star, a big 21-room house on an acre-plus of land, and we all moved there. So you could say, uh, like, I was a child. I was sort of like the rich kid in that case. But, you know, they tried to uh, keep us humble. I mean, we went through... Normal sort of upbringing. It wasn't like I got everything I wanted, but it wasn't really the case of what it was about. Um, you know, I, I guess the case is, like I said, is I was always sort of a smart kid and I rebelled back, and that's where we go to that reference that I said that, you know, I left high school early and I left college early and all that sort of thing. Um, I think Long Island was a great place to grow up, I tend to think. I mean, you know, Halloween was different. You know, 10 kids would come around and your parents would say, okay, come back at 10 o'clock, bye. And you go off by yourself. Everybody walked to the bus stop by themselves. You went 10 blocks to the candy store or you walked up to the train station or something along the lines. There wasn't that sort of worry. There was always some sort of safety in numbers. And there were close-knit neighborhoods that if I was up the block and I did something in trouble and Mr. Porter saw me, sure as shit, I knew it. <laughs> come back to me and get to it. So the point is you sort of like it was, you know, it takes a village to raise a kid. Well, it very was literally. Most of these people were people that had been in New York most of their lives and just slowly moved out to the suburbs for the good life. There were a lot of young families, so a lot of kids around our age that you grew up with. It, it was a nice place, and just slowly it started, started to evolve as it, we had went over time. Um, See, like the difference, too, though, like from this day and age to back when all of us were kids is we all I were... I wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't that young fella. <laughs> You're in denial. Um, but we used to, from like in the summertime, from morning till night, we were outside. Right. There was no staying indoors unless you were sick or broke a bone or something, right? You got it, exactly. Tie a rope to something and jump off it. And right. then go to the park and just come home. Just be, you know what time dinner is. You better be there. Right. That's all it is. Right. The sun goes down, be in the house. And then after that, go grab a jar and go catch lightning bugs. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. Okay, fireworks? Okay, great. Here's a lighter. 
<laughs> Here's a lighter, like drum. Don't blow your hand off. Right. Okay, have fun. Right. Um, so I mean, in the cases, like I said, I tried a lot of things, but what happens is I saw the success that my father and my grandfather had, and you know, I got into the stock market at a young age, at like 17 years old, as like head coffee getter and peon, and I worked hard. I mean, uh, I would work on my ass off when my other friends were still in high school trying to sort of build a career for myself. And it took some time, but, you know, I, some significant, you know, earnings. Didn't sort of work my way up to the point that it all went away. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, uh, life was good. Long Island was always a little more expensive, I guess, to say, than a lot of other places because there were a lot of very elite areas and everything along the line. But, I mean, just ultimately, I think really everybody sort of got along. There was a good breath. People loved New York, and there was a good sort of community feel. No matter what people say about New Yorkers in those cases, now that's that's New Yorkers looking at outside people. If you know what time it is, everything has to happen now. Everything yeah. has to happen now. Don't wait. Don't stop in front of me. Don't sit in line. We're all together. It's all the same sort of thing. There's no reason for any sort of animosity. So for any non-New Yorkers who are listening, you might have to play this at half speed because... <laughs> Because we talk a little quick here, being New Yorkers. <laughs> I guess I'll be the only one talking slow, huh? <laughs> the, the guy from Florida. You cannot claim New York, sir. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was born in New York. I was born in Brooklyn. I didn't live there long. I stood there. I was a toddler. So when, like here in Florida, people are like, are you from New York? And I'm like, yes, I am. And they're like, what part? I'm like, Brooklyn. And they say, yeah, but what part? And I'm like, isn't Brooklyn the part like that? You're talking? <laughs> but when I go to New York and they hear my the way that I talk and they hear the more southern accent come out, then they're like, where the hell are you from? Well, and actually, trivia for your listeners, Brooklyn is actually part of Long Island. Ah, Because right if, you, if you look at a map, Brooklyn is the very edge of Long Island. It's that one body of land, and Brooklyn's on the outside just like Queens is. Right. It's just the counties that separate it, and they call two counties Long Island when actually Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk are Long Island. I like how he's trying to he's trying to put, make Long Island sound like that, like build it up. He's, he's trying to build it. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The city can have Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so, when did you actually move out of New York? Well, this isn't about me, Jeff. I'm just saying. <laughs> I was. Were you like five? Um, maybe four, okay. three or four, yeah. Okay. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I went through, like I said, as I tried to build myself up in the brokerage industry, and I went through working at a lot of places. I worked at Stratton Oakmont, which is most notorious for the Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Yes, I do know George and Belfort. Yes, I did see him. Snorting Coke. I have seen the lies that are in that movie, which is filled with a bunch of lies. I did see Danny eat the goldfish. I did see a lot of that sort of stuff. They used to sweep the offices for bugs every night. And my major problem was I asked questions, and when I asked questions, they fired me. Here's more trivia for you. If you watch that movie, they signed all the paperwork, and the next day they were so surprised that the stock went up that they'd signed poor Steve Madden away, and he went to jail. That's not true. What happens is the day before the stock opened, they handed out 1,000 tickets. They said, okay, at 9 o'clock, uh, sorry, at 9.30 when the stock opens, it's this price. And at 10 o'clock, it's this price. And 11 o'clock, it's this price. So 
open this time clock and stamp these tickets now so we have them for tomorrow. So they set the price the day before the stocks opened, basically, which was a big crime. And that was part of my big complaint, and I was fired shortly after that. But you got to work for bad places to know what working for a good place is. Right. You work in a bucket house, you move to a better place, and a better place, and a better place, and a better place. Working on Long Island, a lot of fly-by-night sort of places. I made my way into Manhattan. I worked for a place called Josenthal. I learned a little bit different part of the business. I worked for HD Broad, which was an all-Hasidic firm, and I made some international contacts. I did international trading. I did some arbitrage. I did options and so on. Finally, I made my way up to Gruntel. Gruntel was a firm, when I got there, was 119 years old. And the idea is there was a scandal that had happened at the company, and they had fired most of their trading staff, and they basically recruited from outside the street. And I got lucky enough to be one of those people brought in. Um, I started at Gruntel in my <coughs> late 20s, in my late 20s, and really quickly, my income 50, 80, 100, 120, 150, 180, 200, to probably the last year I was doing it, last year I was doing it, I was probably set to make $250,000, that year. Uh, I had met a girl while I was working at Gruntel, who's a compliance analyst, Beth, and after a bunch of dating, uh, she married me. She married me uh, in April of 2001. She was like, wait, 120, 130, 180, 250. Yeah, I'm good. I'll marry you. <laughs> that is exactly right. That's part of the reason that we're not married. <laughs> that's a different sort of podcast. But she was a compliance analyst. So what her job was to do was to listen to us make trades on the phone and so on and sort of flag stuff that was illegal and all that sort of case. And once we got married, it became a little bit of a conflict. She couldn't work within our department. Her boss liked her, and she left, and he went over to Nomura, which at the time was the world's largest Japanese bank, and she followed him, which was over at Seven World Trade. So at one point, is I worked at Gruntel, which was at One Liberty Plaza, which for people that geographically don't understand, you watch old tapes of 9-11, that black, shiny building right across from the World Trade Center, that's One Liberty Plaza. She worked at Seven World Trade, which is on the opposite side of those two towers. And pretty much that is what I was doing up until the point that, you know, everything happened. And your big thing was you were like gigantic, gigantor with tech stocks. That oh, was your thing, right? Yeah, I was a technology analyst. So part of it was because my father was in technology. I was always very internet <coughs> and so on, so I could see emerging trends and things before they happened. And because... I was part of so many generations of it, I had a propensity to see things before they happened. So as a young guy, my bosses used to tell me like I had a golden touch. They felt like I was a cowboy because I'd take big risks, but I'd make big money, you know? Um, with being a mid-sized firm, regularly, we'd make about 600000 a month, but I could have a good day and easily make $120,000, $130,000 for the day. Just him. Yeah. I mean, just my just myself. I could move. If uh, somebody was on vacation, I had to cover their box. A lot of times, I'd make three to four times the money that they would make on it. My leaders and my group seemed to recognize that. So most of the technology type of stocks moved my way to trade the Intels and Rambus and, and Maxdoor and Microsoft and all that sort of stuff. And it was great. It was kind of the tech bubble, so you could make a shit ton of tech. Right. How about you, Nick? Charlie. <laughs> but uh, I too grew up in Long Island. 
the council of Hicksville. And um, it was, it was like Charlie said, it was just a great place to grow up. Uh, the, the area that I lived in, it was right near Levittown. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what a Levitt house is. Yep. But it's these houses that were stamped out right after World War II for the returning GIs and their families. Um, and that's where we lived. And it was great because everybody in the neighborhood was about the same age, all the adults. So they all had kids about the same age. I had no brothers and sisters, but on one side, my next door neighbor, they had 14 kids. And then, wow. um, yeah, Irish Catholic. Wow. Go, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> his, his parents were like, they got 14 over there. Why do we need to make more? Just hang out with them. <laughs> I guess that was my parents' attitude. I don't know. I mean, I always wanted a brother or sister. I never got one. But um, and there was, there was just, uh, there was kids everywhere. And kids your own age, and everybody got along. And it was like, you know, like Charlie alluded to, is that, you know, from you walked out in the morning, and you went home when the streetlights came on. And, uh, you know, because we didn't have, uh, I'm starting to sound like a real old guy. We didn't have any new <laughs> title <laughs> contraption. <laughs> on your <laughs> But, and, you know, it, there, there was just so much better, I think, because, you know, you develop relationships with people. And, right. and real relationships, not through a screen or through words or something like that. But, um... But anyway, yeah, so it was a, a great place to grow up. Um, lived there uh, most of my life. Uh, my, my parents uh, divorced in like 1979 or 80, and then I took the house over with my mom. And, uh, and we, you know, like I said, we just lived there until I moved down here uh, five years ago. Um, went through a bunch of different jobs. I, it took me a long time to uh, find my direction. Uh, well, so like when you were younger. Yeah. What kind of jobs did you do? Well, did my you have real job was McDonald's, um, which I kind of credit for helping me with every other job I've had since then, because it's all about teamwork when you work there, um, and like you're all about teamwork. So they really instill that into you, and I think it helped me tremendously with uh, with employment and relationships going forward. So it was, it was good. So I worked at McDonald's, and um, then I managed McDonald's for a little while, and. Uh, I spent some years as a fire dispatcher in uh, some of the towns around there, Bethpage, Jericho, Hicksville. Uh, then um, became a police dispatcher for the NYPD. And then, uh, like I said, in 1988, took the test, and uh, the rest is history. Um, the city itself, I'm sorry, man, there's nothing like it. Right. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, Giuliani used to call it the center of the world. It, it really is. It really is. I mean, you just said that, and Charlie just breathed in, and it's yeah. like, ah. Oh. There's just, there's just no place like it, and you know, I miss it terribly. But you know, economically at this stage of my life, this, it's, this is where it makes sense for me to live. Right. But um, just New York has everything, any time that you want it. You know, I mean, living in Hicksville, it was a 35, 40 minute train ride to the center of Manhattan, and I lived about a mile and a half from the train station. So, you know, I can look at my watch at 6 o'clock, say, oh, we're going to the city. And by 7 o'clock, I'm there. Right, and, you right. know, like I said, the center of the universe, anything that you want to do is there. Um, before we left New York, my wife and I were really big into Broadway. Went to a lot of Broadway shows, saw yep. a lot of great stuff. Yep. Um, just, the, you know, the city. And by the city, those of us who live there know the city means Manhattan. Not Correct. The city, yeah, <laughs> the um, so you said, so you became a cop in 88? So that was kind of 
in the middle of Giuliani cleaning up like 42nd Street and that whole bit, right? Uh, no, he didn't come was on it until after? the mid-90s. Yeah, okay. And I came on... Uh, Who was it, Koch? Dinkins. No, Koch. Oh, Koch was the mayor. Right. And, and then Dinkins. Right that's right. That's and, right. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, I have a picture of myself with, uh, with Ed Koch in my house. Before, when he uh, was leaving office, he re- went around to every precinct in the, in the city to say goodbye and thank you to the wow. Koch. The wow. only mayor since... Then that, that could come close to doing something like that because the cops loved him right. and hated every mayor since right. him. <laughs> right. um, so, uh, yeah, I came up with him, and then, then it was Jenkins, and then it was Giuliani. And, um, yeah, you know, they, that cleanup, as you put it, uh, is really what it was, man. I mean, Times Square, like 4, 2, 7, 8 Broadway, that whole area was all peep shows and adult movie yep. theaters and everything like that. Now it's on the Great White Way. It's all Broadway, even the McDonald's. It looks like a, a theater. Right, <laughs> you right. Know, flashing lights and, yep. and everything, and it's really cleaned up tremendously. I mean, there are still on the fringes. You go to the far west side, you'll see things you probably don't want to see. Right. Um, but as far as, like, you know, where the tourist is, and that's that's why Giuliani did it, was to build up that tourism right. dollar. I mean, it's all about the tourism dollar, and, um, you know, and that's why he invested so much in, in public safety and the police, because he wants more cops and you know, bring more tourists to New York. Right. And, uh, so for those who don't know New York, so 42nd Street was like the big strip that was known for all of the prostitutes and drugs and, <clears throat> excuse me, like Nick said, the peep shows and the just all the nastiness. So when Giuliani got into office, that was one of his main things, was to clean up that whole area to bring in the, the revenue. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Like I said, you go to the west side, you can still find that stuff. Right. <laughs> Do you remember what it was like, Nick, um, first putting on a uniform and actually going out as like your first week, your first day as a police officer? Scared shitless. <laughs> Tell us more. Why? Why? My first assignment was Lower East Side, Ninth Precinct, Alphabet City. Um, at the time a variable shopping mall for heroin, crack, and cocaine. And it was nothing to, to walk to post and see people standing in line outside these abandoned buildings to, buy, to be buying their heroin, to be buying their crack and everything. And, and um, 88, that was right when crack came out. Yeah, that was about the height of it. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, like I said, it was just about impossible to go to work and not arrest somebody. <laughs> you had to not want to do it <laughs> to not arrest somebody. Um, but, um, and where I, ter- where I turned out of, actually turned out of a different precinct, which was on 2nd Avenue and 20th Street, and Alphabet City is like, you know, 25 blocks another direction, so it was, uh, you know, you had to walk down there or take the bus. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a little sad, you know, be, me being white guy from the suburbs, and I got thrown into this. I'll tell you, for my first two or three times, because, you know, for, when you're new, you're thrown out there on a foot post all by yourself. Um, so for those night shifts, I would turn my radio up real loud so everybody knew I was coming. <laughs> Came with my keys as I turned the corner, yeah. you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was scary. And, you know, I'm not the only one that feels that way because as the years went on and, you know, talking to other new guys as they came on or dropping them off at a post or something like that, you could see the apprehension and the fear. I mean, because it's, you know, back then, it was, well, it is now, it always has been, but it was, uh, it was a zoo. It was the Wild West. It really was. Um, right. I mean, I, I remember when I was a rookie, 
I was standing maybe across the street from Zed. So that could have been more than 30 or 40 feet. And I walked up to another guy as he's standing there with his bag of cookies and boom, just popped him right in. Had broad daylight on a Saturday afternoon. Two cops standing right across the street. We just get <laughs> boom, F you, and he took off. Jeez. So it, was, it was a wild. And the two of us standing like, did we both see that? <laughs> wow. Do you have like one or two situations that stick out in your mind from when you were a cop that like was just craziness? Aside from the one that you <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, Jeff, there's, there's just so many of them. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, when I think crazy, I think Angel Dust. If you've ever seen anybody on Angel, Angel Dust. Angel Dust, PCP. Oh They're like Superman. Yep. Um, I had a, a naked guy in the middle of uh, East Tremont Avenue, which is like a pretty major commercial strip. Um, he was... Zoned out on PCP, and at the time, I was probably about 50, 60 pounds heavier than I am now, so probably like 240, 250. He threw me like I was throwing his cup across the room. Wow. And it was like, whoa. Um, so that, that's what I, when you say craziness, that, that's what I think of. I think uh, any time I was dealing with anybody that was on drugs. Um, and Angel Dust and PCP, for some reason, they're always naked. Yeah, I don't know right? why. <laughs> they just make you real hot. <laughs> 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 I don't know from experience. I'm just saying, <laughs> allegedly. So you're just sitting here naked for the hell of it. Allegedly, <laughs> I'm a little hot. <laughs> so let's rewind a little bit. So did you have any hobbies growing up, like teenager, or as a kid, teenager? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I played guitar, so I played in bands, um, which I loved doing. And then when I got older, I played. You know, we played bars and clubs and stuff like that. I did that till I was about. You know, 22, 23, uh, that was, you know, that was tremendous. I, I love doing that. I, I still play, but, you know, just myself. Um, that, that was, uh, and of course, you know, like every other Long Island, I played Little League Baseball and stuff like that. Right. But, uh, was there any reason why you picked up guitar? Did anything interest you <laughs> specifically? You know what? It's so funny you say that because I was just having this conversation with my wife the other night. Um, when I was a little kid, maybe seven, eight years old. That's when she said, we put down that damn guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear that song one more time. Um, when I was about seven or eight years old, my parents bought me an electric guitar for Christmas. Didn't ask for it. Just woke up Christmas morning, and there it was. So I get signed up for lessons and things like that, and it never took. I had no interest in it, and it just never took. And then maybe about three, four years later, for some reason, I became interested, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I got. I started playing guitar. Okay. I really don't. Um, I, I don't know if it was one of my parents' ideas that I take up an instrument, but I, just, I, I don't know how it started. Okay, <laughs> it just, all right. And it's really odd because you talk, you know, like you, you, you talk to any of these rock stars. They're like, yeah, my mom bought me this 1922 Martin, blah, 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 blah. And that's how I got started. I have no idea why I started playing guitar, but I'm happy I did. Nice, nice. How about you, Charlie? Did you have any hobbies or interests or? Well, I mean, I've always been the true geek. Just like I said, I was a specialist in computers. I've been collecting comics for 40 years. So, shit, I mean, there's probably 20,000 comics sitting in my house right now. 20,000? Closet that's filled floor to ceiling, and then I just moved about fifteen boxes over into another closet. 
So when you talk comic books, I I collected as a as a kid. Right. I have like maybe two hundred. Right. Um, but Spider Man was my dude. Right. So, who was your go to? What was your go to comic book? You know what? I never sort of chose sides. I just always read what I liked. You yeah, know? yeah. So like, I loved the like teen books. I loved I loved the Avengers. I loved the Justice League and stuff like that. But I read everything. I read Spider Man. I read Batman. I read the Flash. I read literally everything. Uh huh. So to this day, you still buy them now, and you still read them now? Oh, no, I steal them now. Well, because the idea is that most people realize, I mean, a modern comic book's about four bucks right now. Yeah, yeah. The idea is you got to figure when I was five and started reading, they were 20 cents. So by the time you get to be about seven, you know, your dad gives you five bucks. You know, it's a lot of money. Yeah. 20 bucks, and that's a tremendous amount of money now Mm -hmm. that you... One. Yep. So that's a totally different story. So, I mean, I try to stay up with the stories and so on, but I'm more of a collector of like, you know, a certain time period of yeah. like the 60s, the 70s, and stuff like that. And since that point, I, we frequent a lot of the comic conventions and stuff like that, which I still even do today. A week and a half ago, I came back from Dragon Con. Which do you dress? Do you do the whole dress up, oh, get up, and all of that I stuff? Do, uh, uh, I was gonna say. Right, right, right. I mean, I could be Elmer Fudd, maybe. Uh-huh. I could be one of the guys from Hydra or Lex Luthor. But yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm more, you know, they're comics, they're sci-fi and everything along the lines. But it's just to be with people that truly enjoy what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot bigger spectacles than people would think. So it's Atlanta's single biggest weekend of tourism. Huge. Comic-Con is ridiculous. Well, so Dragon Con's 85,000 people come to Dragon Con. What's the difference? So that is in Atlanta. Comic Con is in San Diego, and that's a little more tied to Hollywood Studios and so on. You can gotcha. start promoting the movies. New York has, a, has their own convention also. Mm-hmm. Dragon Con is called more of a fans convention. The idea, rather than it being in a convention center, it's in a set of hotels that are sort of interconnected. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the crowd sort of spreads out to like a 20-block radius. So you're at CVS standing on line with Chewbacca and Frankenstein, and you're at the food court with a couple elves, a couple elves, and Darth Vader, and it's that sort of thing. Also, it's 24 hours a day. So if you can't sleep and at 4 a.m. you want to go do something, there's something going on. Yeah, yeah. You're going to wake up and see Frodo just walking around. You're like, am I dreaming or is this am I just walking around downtown? So this was just recently that you went, just last week or two weeks ago. So you also said that all the celebrities, the thing about this one is that they actually walk around with the people, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so what happens on a Saturday night? So Marriott is the key hotel in there that have a bunch of big convention uh, rooms. The idea is the room's fully packed and maybe hold like a thousand people. So they'll have a regular party that'll run, let's say, eight to 12 or something like that. And then at 12, they'll have a party like a rave that'll run from 12 to 6 a.m. And it's not unusual to see one of the celebrities call another guy and then come down into the rave and they get shitted and then everybody's dancing. Or go to the bar and see two people or three people that you know from a TV show sitting at a table or buying shots for the bar. And the interesting thing is that they don't get mauled by the crowd. It's not like if you saw a Hollywood star, everybody runs up and grabs their arm to get an autograph. It's like, you're one of us. We're happy that you're here. The, the best commentary that I remember is, if you ever watched True Blood, right? The guy who used to play L.C., Joe Montiola, who's also in uh, Magic Mike. Right. So 
he had tried to be an actor. He's also a guy from New York. He's also from Long Island, and he had failed. And he went back, and he was sort of laying bricks, but he still had some headshots out. And his agent called him, and he goes, hey, you know, I have a, I have a role for you. I want you to read for He goes, you know, for a werewolf on True Blood. And he's like, oh, my God, I watched that show. I'd love to be on it. And he says, he got the job. And he said, a year ago, he goes, I was you. And he goes, I loved it. I wanted to meet everybody. He goes, I was, you know, I was captured by all this. He goes, so while I'm here, he goes, if you see me and you want to stop me and tell me about how great things are or you want to talk, he goes, feel free, anywhere. It doesn't make a difference. And that's the sort of analogy that comes from a lot of these conventions that yeah. they really appreciate their fans because that's what makes the machine go, makes the world go around. Right. So, Nick. He's still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you fell asleep over there. He's just like, oh, no. no. <laughs> um, so Jeff talked about uh, kind of some of the, the experiences that stood out to you as a cop. Uh, on September 11th, you were still a cop. I was. Could you um, maybe begin with how that day started for you? day in New York, and um, I was my precinct's election officer, which meant that a couple of days before the election, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, in New York City, for some reason, there has to be a police officer at, at every polling place. Don't know why, but cops love it because it's a down day and you can just relax. Um, so my precinct has like 30, had like 33 or 34 polling places, so it was my job the day before election day to uh, reach out <coughs> to other precincts and get cops and detectives to come in and man these polls. So that, that's what I, what I did. So actually that, that day, that Tuesday, was a down day for me. It was what we call an admin day. So I wasn't even in full uniform. I was just, you know, uniform, shirt, and pants, and that was it. I wasn't going out on the street. Um, started it uh, at 4 a.m. Uh, and, you know, it's 5 a.m. The cops start coming in, send them all out to their polls and stuff like that. And that's it. I'm down for the rest of the day. I'm, I'm good. I'm watching the clock until 12.30 and I can go home. Um, I actually had a tea time at Bethpage that day. Well, I'll tell you about that later on. <laughs> little um, black horse. Oh yeah, no, not the black horse. <laughs> <laughs> the black horse. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I went on playing golf at one thirty that afternoon. Um, so, um, as far as you know, what times and everything, I, I don't want to be held to exact times and everything. But just suddenly, you hear the police radio going nuts. Um, a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, just abnormally nuts. So, start listening, and now you know, we realize what's going on. Um, so, we figure it's going to be on TV, so we go downstairs to our lounge, me and my partner. We're downstairs to the lounge, and we're watching it on TV, and that was, you know, just the one tower was hit at that time. Um, then we see the second one come right in. And I remember the reporters incorrectly saying that it looks like a piece of the tail from the plane just fell from, you know, when it crashed into the first one. But we, you know, clear as day, you can see the second plane. And my partner just turned to me. I could still hear his voice in my in my head. He just turned to me and stared at me. He goes, we are under attack. So we immediately sprinted up the third floor, which is where our locker room was. Um, got into our, our street uniform, vest on, and grabbed, you know, all our, our mobilization gear is what we called it. It was basically a bag with a bunch of uh, stuff you need for 
riots or demonstrations, whatever. Um, and then uh, there, there were van, there were two 12 passenger vans at the precinct. It, you know, it was an all hands mobilization, so everybody was going. Um, we got in the, in the first van and racing down there. And um, <clears throat> I remember the, uh, the police radio was, it was just crazy. It was, it was nuts. And it got to a point where we turned it off. Um, because um, after, uh, after the first building came down, th that's where you heard people um, crying for their life. And um, NYPD lost one female officer on that day. And I heard her last words on the radio. And it, you know, it just chills me to this day. Um, and you know, out of her respect for her and her family, I would never repeat what I what I heard. Um, but it just like right to the core. It was like it was like a knife through the chest hear, hearing that because you know, as as wild a place as New York is, for a cop to be in serious deadly trouble, it's very very rare. Um, there's a radio code 1013. That means you know, help, help, help. I'm getting killed or whatever. You never, rarely, rarely hear a cop call that. Um, I didn't, obviously, you heard it many, many times that day. So it was, it was between um, people screaming on the radio, bosses screaming on the radio for everybody to get out. Um, it, it was just nuts. So we, we stopped the van probably about three or four blocks before, before the World Trade Center. And we just got out and we just started walking, you know, closer, closer to it. And I know it was in the back of my mind. <laughs> I'm sure it was in the back of others. But all I know is that, you know, the first one came down. So the second one's probably going to come down too. Um, but you know what? We had a job to do. Uh, and that was, I know that's all that was on my mind is I'm here to do a job. Uh, and, you know, and come hell or high water, I'm going to do it. And that's, you know, <coughs> and for the longest time, before I felt comfortable talking about it, believe it or not, when somebody would ask me about my 9-11 experience, I'd say, ah, it was just another day at work, um, which is my way of saying, I really don't want to talk about it. Um, but it was, it, was just, it was just chaos. And then when the, uh, when the second one did come down, um, ran for my life, <laughs> like thousands of other people, um, ducked underneath a, <coughs> a UPS truck, um, and then just closed my eyes, and I'm not a religious person, but I prayed, um, and just just waiting. Just you know, I hope you know this is not my time. Uh, there was the woman next to me. I have no idea who she was. She jumped onto the same truck as I did, and um, you know she's looking to me for help and guidance because I'm the one wearing the uniform. And uh, I want to say, lady, I'm just as scared as you are. Right. You know. Right. Um, but then, you know, when, it, when it, it finally did quiet down, and then, you know, I come out from under the truck, it was just this eerie, eerie silence. But all you could hear was um, the firemen had these alerts on their Scott pack. Uh, when they're not moving for a certain period of time, they start going off. And all you can hear were hundreds of those. And I, I was a volunteer fireman on Long Island, so I know what that noise is. And all I'm thinking is that, you know, there's hundreds of firemen in, in these buildings and, you know, we got to get to them. Um, but it was, it was, I don't have too many details after that because it was just all, it was just all a blur. 
It was go to this spot and do this. Come over here and do this. Go over here and do that. It was, it was just all day, just probably like 18, 19 hours of that. What I do remember from that day was when I finally got to go home. Uh, it was only for a couple hours, <laughs> just to shower, get changed, and come right back. Uh, but the, uh, the welcome I got at home, was, it was awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you see those videos of guys coming back from deployment and stuff right. like that. It, it was a lot like that. It was my wife and, and my son was living with us. Uh, he, was, he was in high school back then. Um, you know, they just like, you know, not letting go. <laughs> Prior to getting back home, were you in contact with your family? Did they know you were okay? Um, yeah, but they thought I was in the Bronx. Well, my wife did. I, I lied to my wife that entire day. And I've, I've since come clean, so it's okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I always tell everybody I've, I've never lied to her and haven't lied to her since. But that was that one day. I didn't want her to worry about me. Um, but then when I finally came clean, I said, hey, I knew that. I've <laughs> 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 been carrying this with me. <laughs> but she said, yeah, where else would you be? You know? and, right. it, and it was like, um, I don't know if you remember, like a couple of months later, a plane went down in uh, Rockaway yep. that was headed to uh, Colombia, I think it was. Yep. Uh, no, uh, Dominican Republic. Um, again, same, you know, we ran out on the way there. And, um, you know, I, I called my wife on the way there. And she goes, yeah, I, I heard about it. I figured you're on your way there already. I said, okay. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. What was I don't it? have to lie about this one. Bar Harbor, right? Uh, Bell Harbor. Yeah. Bell Harbor. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, and then just like I said, I, I mean, I apologize for not knowing – too much as far as details go uh, of the rest of that day, but I just, um, like I said, I remember the homecoming, <laughs> and and then just going right back like two hours later. I mean, I, I, I just lay, lay down for uh, like an hour or two, showered up, and just went right back into it. And that was our routine probably for about a month, month and a half before things got uh, some semblance of normalcy. Um, and here's when I knew things got back to normal, and when I mentioned my the tea time that I had on September 11th. Right. Um, it was at Beth Page, which is in New York State Park, and they have this phone system where you call in and you can make a tea time over the phone, which is what I did. If you miss that tea time, if you don't show up and don't call them, it, it costs $10, and you can't make reservations until you pay that $10. So about a month and a half later, it was one of those mid-November days where you know out of the blue it'll be like 70 degrees, right? right? So went to go play. They wouldn't let me on. Yes. Because I missed my tea time. So, New I, York. Yeah, well, check it out. I, I, I take out my wallet and I show my ID card. I said, Miss, I'm a New York City police officer. On September 11th, I was a little bit busy. You think you could wave it? I said, No, I'm sorry. I said, well, I said, Is there a manager here or somebody I could talk to? And nobody would help me. No. You want to play? Ten bucks. Wow. Okay. Things are back to normal. Wow. <laughs> If you can make it there. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Beth Page. Maybe you spent that ten dollars wise. Charlie. And I call him Charlie because I've known him for twenty-five years. So. So. Can you st start your day? Uh, I get pretty basic a little bit. Go ahead. Okay, so that year, that greedy, money-hungry woman that Jason <laughs> had mentioned earlier, <laughs> I actually mistakenly had married her in April. She dropped a lot of money on a wedding, which 
this young man Jeff was actually at. Yep. Quite lavish. Yep. Uh, I paid for it all because it's making a large amount of income. I dropped about $50,000 on it. And we were uh, renting a home together. And basically, we were looking to purchase a place. So we were living on Belmore, Long Island, yep. right across the street from the, trade, uh, from the train. Yep. So the way the schedule would normally work is because she had to be at the bank and I had to be at brokerage, is we had to get in early enough that I could sort of see how the European market would close. So our regular regimen was that we had to catch the 701 train out of Belmore into Penn Station, which is basically right under Madison Square Garden for people that don't know. I would catch a subway. The subway would be about 15 minutes. I'd get out a couple blocks early and we'd pick up a cup of coffee. We'd walk three or four blocks. I'd give her a kiss. She'd go one side of the Twin Towers to 7th. I'd go the other way across the street to Warren Liberty Plaza. So it's like 6.45 and we're running out of time. And I'm yelling at her. I'm like, we got to go. And she's like, I'm having trouble drying my hair. She's like, I'm going to miss the train. Go catch a train without me. I said, no, no, I'll, I'll wait for you. So the next train is the 7.19, which instead of going to Manhattan, would go to Brooklyn. Catch this train, and in order to get into Manhattan from Brooklyn, you had to catch a 456 train. 456 train would basically go under the river, and the first stop would come out, it might have been the second stop, would come out Wall Street, right on the corner of Wall Street and Broadway. So, uh, train gets in, we go upstairs, and the 456, the doors open, and it's packed as shit. There are so many people in there, I'm like, fuck it, just we'll wait an extra five or ten minutes, we're already late, don't worry about it, we'll wait for the next train. Next subway car pulls up and it's relatively empty. It's cool to get inside. Train's going for a while. Basically kicked underneath the river and train stops. Lights go off and so on. Happens occasionally with like train traffic, but it's like when I think back in retrospect, it's just like sort of weird. And uh, pulls up on Wall Street. We go up the stairs and we walk out. And there's a there's paper falling out of the air. And there's like a there's like a slight ashy sort of smell in the air, and you can hear sirens and so on. And I was talking to her, I'm like, it's supposed to be a parade or maybe a fire or something. I couldn't understand it. And we started to walk up Broadway. So we're basically, in retrospect, we have to walk about six blocks. So as we're walking up, one of the first things we come across is Trinity Church. And I see the secretary for one of the guys I work with nailing on the, on the stairs of the church praying, and she's crying her eyes out. And I went up to her, I'm like, what is wrong? And she's rambling. I couldn't make sense. And she kept saying something about the plane hit the building and it's horrible and you need to go home and you need to leave. And we were so close to Newark. The very thing in New York, is, I'm sure you would understand, is a lot of guys would take up, let's say, a two-seater and lose control and occasionally you're on, boom, yep. you know, you, you smash it. JFK Jr. Something yep. along the lines. So I'm thinking, yep. okay, it's horrible, but it's something along the lines of that, you know. I sort of tried to put her at ease. I told her to go home. And me and my wife kept making our way up to Broadway. So as we walk up, when we get to the block before Liberty, it's a concrete park with a lot of benches, like statues of people eating lunch, people playing chess, a bunch of food vendors and so on. And you've got a straight diagonal view of the World Trade Center, both towers actually. And the second we step up, that first tower closest to us, that was the one that was hit that basically had that corner damage. And they're already people on the outside of the building starting to try to climb out. My wife started to freak out. And while we're just standing there looking up, somebody drops right out of the sky. She screams, she freaks out. I put my hand over the side of her face and she's like, my father's in the city, my brother's in the city, what do we do? I'm going to shh, shh, 
messaged him like, look, you just gotta make it across the street to get into my building. I have, I have 100 phone lines, I have every news service in the world, let's get inside and let's figure out what is going on. I'm like, look, I'm gonna cover your face. I'm like, let's just, just don't look and let's just keep going. And just like, you could hear sounds that you would sort of try to tune out and it was a short walk, but it seemed like a really long one. So we walked into the lobby and as fate's habit was Danielle, who was a friend of ours, who was actually Beth's maid of honor. She worked with me at Gruntle, and she's crying in the lobby, and the two of them see each other, and they start hugging. Oh, my God, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. Blah, 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 blah. They're talking, and then just you hear, <sighs> big shadow, other plane, flies overhead, hits the building, whole building shakes. Everybody screams and starts running. I grab the two of them. And we go out to the Broadway side, I jam my arm in the turnstile, I shove the two of them in underneath me, I spin it, and I run outside. So now we have one liberty is in between us and the two towers. And shit's falling down out of the fucking sky. And uh, look at the two of them, and in, in retrospect also, this was pretty stupid. I'm like, you two need to go. I'm like, go right up Broadway. I'm like, I need to go back inside. And like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, I have a lot of money tied up. And I'm like, and the market's going to open in an hour. And I'm like, I need to get out. And we got into an argument really quick, which seemed like an eternity, but maybe it was like 30 seconds to a minute. So finally, they convinced me both to go with them. So the idea was Daniel's husband was a derivatives analyst, and he worked for Chase. He worked for Chase, and they worked in Midtown, which is probably uh, 60 blocks away. 60 blocks away on foot, so we were just going to try to make it, so we started to walk. So I had a cell phone at that point, I could not get a signal. And you could walk past the side block and you could see the other tower with the big outline, with the big outline of the plane. It's still there's people out on the street, freaking bloody and bruised, people running away, there's people crying. It's just like, it's a bad scene. And it's just, you're trying to get away from it as quickly as you can. And we only managed to get a couple blocks and we come across a bay of payphones. It was the only way to get in touch with anybody. And I had change. I gave change to both the girls. And each one of us got on a different line. And the idea was to call your parents. So I called my mother. And I told my mother, I said, I had my wife and I had found Danielle. And she's like, oh my God. She's like, I knew that you would be okay. And you need to take care of the girls. And you need to get out of there. And you don't know what's going on. I know. I, 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 we're trying to get out of here. It's fine. We, I hang up. You know, I meet the girls. Uh, my wife says that her father, who was, he was a vice president of disaster recovery for Chase, the second first plane hit, Chase picked him up, threw him in an SUV, took him over to Brooklyn. Basically, they were covering bank of, uh, they were covering operations, and what happens is uh, Bank of New York had had a tremendous hit, and at that point is Chase was picking up their transactions for them. Bank of New York would have freaking went down that day had Chase not done it. And Daniel said she spoke to Vinny, and they said that we were okay if we were cleared to come into Chase's headquarters if we could make it to Midtown. So we're discussing how we were going to do that. And all of a sudden, you feel a rumble, and you hear people start to scream and run up the street. And what the idea is, the first tower was starting to fall. And I freaked the fuck out. So like, I thought like a domino effect rather than a come straight down. So I'm like, I need distance. And I picked both of the girls up threw them on my shoulders, and I started running down the avenues. And I got the long way. And I got three full blocks before I ran out of freaking steam. You know, we escaped that. We escaped everything. The cloud, the masses, everything along the lines. So we had to sit like 10 minutes to compose ourselves. So we're down to probably now like 
close to Fifth Avenue. I'm turning the first corner, and right there was the reserve, and already the freaking the military was out there, full camo guns and so on. And I asked him, like, what is going on? He's like, we're under attack. He's like, the Pentagon just got hit. You got to get yourself to a safe spot. I'm like, what what is going on? Nobody knows the talk. People are rambling in the streets. They're saying crap like, oh, there's car bombs going off during the city. There's people walking across the bridges. It's just a state of panic. And vehicles aren't moving in the streets. People are pulling over and they're turning the radios up. And there's groups of people, you know, huddled around a taxi cab or a work truck trying to hear what's going on because you don't know. You just saw something, heard an explosion, there's people bleeding, you don't know what's going on. And that's only when you really, when you got an idea of what had happened. And you realize that the whole city was closed off. You had nowhere to go. Unless you were close enough to walk across one of the bridges, you were trapped. So we walked the however many blocks up to Chase and called me from payphone there. He came down and got us. They let us in. They were really nice. They let us into the executive washroom for us to clean up. We were filthier than we sort of expected. They opened the cafeteria. They fed us for free. And we just sat up there and nobody at that bank seemed to work. Just the TVs were on and just everybody watched the footage. And you just, you were just trapped. You just had to sit there all day and you're just in the middle of it, watching the horror of everything, watching everybody make their sacrifices, not knowing what the hell is going on, what's going to happen. And a long time goes by. It wasn't until maybe 6 or 7 o'clock at night till they started opening spots out of the city, and I caught a subway train back to Jamaica, to Jamaica, Queens, to catch Long Island Railroad back. And I get back to the house, and there's 26 messages on my answering machine. There's you crying. There's Todd crying. There's my aunts and uncles calling me. There's my cousins. There's their friends. Because the way that they used to know was, oh, she worked at a World Trade Center building, and he worked right across the street, and nobody had heard from us all day. So everybody thought something had happened. And it's just it's just a state of shock at that point. Like, what do you do? Like, you know, life really changed, and then the days after just really weren't any easier. Right. So, what was the next day like? The next day is not moving. You get up and you turn the TV on and you watch that footage again and again and again and again and again. And you try to call somebody that you knew close enough because you, the point is you're not wondering if they're okay, you're trying to wonder if they're alive. Because in that community that we had, you know, as far as the finance community that I worked in or her community, in other words, there were four brokerage firms that would go to dinner with guys regularly in this tower and three in this tower and this one worked around the corner from that and so on. There were a lot of people that just disappeared at that point. And it was ultimately that one of my bosses called us at the end of the day and he had asked if we were okay and asked if she, were okay, she was okay and we didn't lose anybody. Certain of our guys were at different spots around the city. Somebody jumped into a garbage truck to protect themselves. Another guy jumped into an alcove of a bank with a bunch of people and wreckage trapped them and so on, but they managed to get out. But uh, that our building was damaged and they weren't going to be able to go back. And then her boss had called her from Nomura and said that, uh, that their building was still on fire and that they weren't going to be able to go back because the uh, seven had got lit up with part of the wreckage that had fell and then it had this big, wonderful atrium that just freaking burst into flame. <laughs> you know, all the wonder that was in it just started to get roasted to the ground. And uh, it, 
over the next couple days, I mean, there wasn't any work being done until finally my boss said, okay, we have temporary space. Jersey City was another big spot for brokerage in New York. And there were a lot of firms there. And there was one firm that we had a relationship with that said, we can give you some temporary space. There were 35 of us traders. And they said, we'll give you some space, but you have to get to Jersey City. So for me, that meant 45 minutes into the city, 15 minutes on the subway, then another 40 minutes on another train. So my commute basically became like an hour and 40 minutes. Her boss called. How long after was this? Was it like a week? This was within a week. And, uh, and her boss called and said, obviously, that they could not go back to the city, and she had to work out in Suffolk. So basically, an hour and a half commute the opposite way. So we both got up an hour earlier than we normally would, kiss each other, and then go on one and a half commutes in the opposite direction. And for me, it was especially hard, right? Because, you know, having access to everything that I needed when I was trading was part of how I was making this life for us and making this world for us. When we got to this brokerage firm, we had six seats and three phone lines for 35 guys. So which meant is I could sit down and do trading for like two hours and then I could give up my space to somebody else who then had to give up his space to somebody else, who then had to give up his space to somebody else. So even though we tried to trade, we started losing money. And before the end of the month, we had lost $30 million. Nick, yes. you mentioned that uh, you went home mm -hmm. for a few hours, yeah. kissed your family, hugged your family, held them tight, washed up, went back out. Mm -hmm. When you went back out, how long were you out there, and and what was happening then? How because it just from watching, and and I was twenty something years old. I just got out of the Marine Corps, um, but when you went back out, what was that experience like? Well, driving there was eerie because uh, the city was closed except for emergency personnel. So. Um, <clears throat> I'm driving in on the northern state and right to the city line where they come to Grand Central, there are state troopers lined up, their lights on, and you know, you can't get through. So you know, you ID yourself and, and then they let you through. So that was kind of eerie. So there's no traffic. And the bane of my existence while I was working there, there was a frog's neck bridge, 350 a day each way. That was <coughs> free. <laughs> I was so excited. I got free passage into the Bronx. Um so, uh, yeah, so we had, I had to get back, I had to be back at the precinct by 4 a.m. Uh, and then we must have been a precinct and jump in cars and vans and then just head down there. And a lot of, on that, on that second day was still a lot of chaos. Um, a lot of, you know, there were, at that point, there were just too many of us and they didn't know what to do with us. Um, so they had us on posts, like, you couldn't be any further from the World Trade Center if you stayed home. Um, so it was, it was a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion. And then in the days to follow, I would say when the military showed up and they set up uh, the distribution points for us, I mean, these, I was amazed. Um, I saw this, this one soldier pull up with a flatbed full of plywood and two-by-fours, and I turned around 10 minutes later, there's a whole storage hut built. So once, you know, th that, that was on like the second or third, yeah, second or third day after, um, and just things were a lot more organized. Um, but then, you know, then there was the looking for survivors. Um, I, s I think I spent maybe two or three 
yeah, three three full days um, down at the pile. Um, just just you know, they they say digging and everything, but it was it was like chain things. You know, somebody would the dig buckets. and then you just yeah, you pass the bucket to the next guy. And, you know, there's like 20, 30 people in a line, and that that was the digging. Um, and you know, always you knew what you were there to do and what you were there to find, but you know that little. Spark saying, oh, God, I hope I don't say anything that is going to, you know, make me vomit or something. Um, but, you know, you again, they had to do a job. And, and I, I don't know, I guess maybe adrenaline or something just takes over and you just block all that crap out. Because um, I, I saw a lot of things that I didn't want to see, but I did see them. And, um, um, and, and just, you know, just kind of went on with it. Um, I, I don't know, maybe I car, car, uh, compartmentalized a little bit, but um, I just I just remained very focused on what I was there to do, uh, so that when I came across those unsettling things, uh, sometimes more than one, two, three, four at a time, um, it was just like, okay, Lieutenant, here's what we need to do. You know, it's just very procedural is, is what I'm trying to say. So. Knowing that, that there was a job to do and that there were certain steps that needed to be taken, maybe that made it a little bit easier to do. I don't know. Um, but that, that was backbreaking work. And, um, and then just like in the days to follow were a lot of posts and, and assignments in, in different spots. I think, it, like I said, it went on for about a month and a half or so. Uh, and, you know, Charlie mentioned the Trinity Church. Uh, funny story. Um, it was the Sunday after. Uh, and I was on a post. I must have been standing on my feet for probably 13, 14 hours. My dogs were barking. <laughs> so when I finally got a break, I went inside the Trinity Church because that became like our place to rest. We kind of took it over, the police and fire, and that was our place to go take a break. So uh, I found one of the pews, and I plopped down, and I put my feet up on, a, on another door, and I was like exhausted. And this girl in a, like a nurse's uniform came by, and she said, would you like a foot massage? And I said... I said, Miss, I've been standing on these feet for about 14 hours. I wouldn't want anybody to come near me. <laughs> so she goes, oh, it's okay. I've given foot massages to homeless people. I said, well, now I definitely don't want you to touch <laughs> Do you have a pair of gloves? <laughs> <laughs> but that was the thing. You know, you know Charlie's uh, touched on the generosity of, you know, when he stopped into those places and they opened the cafeterias and let them clean up and stuff like that. Um, we saw that. Big time. Uh, I mean, the, the city, you know, as horrible as it was, it was really a great time to be a cop because you got the, every, finally, everybody realized what you do for a living. You know, everybody realized that blindly we will do what we need to do if it means saving, protecting life. Um, so that was like New York's wake-up call. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the greatest feelings I had was uh, at the end of the day, Sometimes you'd pile up on the back of a flatbed truck with about 20 or 30 other cops and just head up the West Side Highway and go, you know, head to the Bronx. There were people out there with signs and flags and, you know, stop for a light. Girls come over and give you hugs and people crying. And, that, and it would just fills you with such pride, you know. And it, like I said, it was really as sad as a time it was. It was, it was the, I felt it was a great time to be a cop because people finally realized what you go out there and do every day. You right. know, you don't ask questions. You don't ask what color somebody's skin is. You just go and do it. You know, you don't, you don't think about it. You're there to do a job, and, and you do that job. And 
that's what you signed on to do. And when that when 9-11 happened, it was like the city of New York, the people realized that, you know, hey, yeah, these guys just, damn, I wouldn't have done that. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> See, I remember the one of the most beautiful things to me was, I know you said after a month and a half, they kind of rooked you at the Bethpage uh, course, <laughs> but I remember, to me, just as a New Yorker, that feeling kind of lasted for about a year, okay. you know, probably about a year, nobody honking a horn, yeah. nobody yelling out their window, yeah. everybody being that much kinder yeah. to yeah. somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and just after that one year mark, like everybody went back to being assholes again. <laughs> but like, you know, yeah. just for that year though, it was, and it was a conscious thing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where I, I remember seeing footage of people bringing stuff to the fire departments right. and the precincts and you guys being thanked, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Every single day. Right. And like you said, it's like people became aware. Mm-hmm. And it was just a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know? And, you know, you talk about people bringing food to precincts. Word got out there one day of all the search and rescue dogs that were in the pile looking for people. The amount of dog food in our precincts. Wow. <laughs> it was like wow. we put it in one of the cells from floor to ceiling. <laughs> like you read a dog chow. Wow. <laughs> We don't give a shit about the people. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Charlie, af- afterwards? So many people in the streets with a flyer. Have you seen my son? Have you seen my daughter? Right. These walls of pictures. The walls of, of posters. Our daddy is missing and so on. Two mom and dad both looking for their kid. And every day, the same people in both stations all across. It just, you know, it sort of broke your heart. And what happens is we're even talking a week or two weeks after things happen. And they're doing that. And you sort of understand yourself what happens and they just haven't come to terms with it right. as of yet. That's why they're still out there in the streets. Right. But people were very good and was very understanding. There was no pushing. There was no shoving. Everything was orderly and organized. People were sympathetic and actually loving. You know, it was one of those it was really probably the best testimony is saying sort of like a love your neighbor sort of testimony. And there was a lot of recognition in, in, in commendation Nick and, and, the, and the firemen out there. In other words, that, that New York more realizes that this was the group of people that when there was danger and everybody else was running away, these are the people that were running to. Yep. And that's that sort of statement. That's why there was such a public appreciation because they know that they were all making such a sacrifice. Right. But, um, so you, you were saying um, you were doing the Jersey thing. Yeah. So how long did that last? Lost so much money. What had happened? 
real quick snap back. Before the couple weeks before this happened, we were supposed to go and do a merger, and we we're supposed to join up to a larger brokerage firm, Prudential Beige, and basically we were all promised sort of like senior executive trader jobs and so on, and this basically knocked the floor out of that. Then we had a month of just horrible, horrible earnings, and uh, they basically pulled us down one day and they said we've lost so much money the company doesn't want to go on. They're selling us our gear bottom. And they gathered your whole group up. Yep. And just basically in like it was, it was like a, a ballroom where they would serve lunch, temporary sort of space in this building. Just came down unofficially. Nobody sat down. Hey, by the way, blah 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 blah. And actually, as one of the younger guys, I got to stay on another week because I got to liquidate everything. So the idea is, I got to tr I got to sell everything that we owned along with one other young trader and just just kick it all out. And how many how many people were there in your group? Thirty five. So the, the the thing for me at that point is that you know I was sort of like, all right, and we'll take them back. Like I'd been with that firm six years at that point. You know, I was thirty one, and my model really what was going on at that point in my head it, like it really didn't snap at me. Like I was sort of aspiring to the point that I said within a couple of years that this merger hall happened, I could have earned more money and then maybe gotten out because it was the highest suicide rate trading at the highest suicide rate of any other industry at that point that I didn't want to sort of like ruin my life and stress and ulcers. So I assumed by 35, I'd have enough to maybe like buy a bar or open a restaurant or buy a franchise or something like that. So I didn't sort of think that it really changed when this happened and we got terminated, but I sure as shit it changed. Right, right. Um, well, the, I think at the time one of the biggest things were across the board a lot of traders and brokers were fired and they were trying to hire all the young kids on for like $35,000 a year, right? Yeah, so the idea was once this all just went down, you know, you always had connections and you tried to call around and get yourself in at another job and as long as you could make money, you know, in other words, you could come in and offer benefits. And I'd call a friend of Charles Schwab and say, oh yeah, call me Monday and I'd call Monday and I'm like, no, word came down, we fired 15% today, that job doesn't exist. And you'd hunt, and what happens is that 15% now joined that job hunting field. Then you went to another firm and they fired 10% and now they joined that job hunting field. And the idea is, is specifically that industry within that pocket of the city at that time and a tremendous amount around that area wound up unemployed and looking and I can say is with the percentage of guys that I work with, five percent of them still do it right now. At this point, all the rest of them were forced out because you just couldn't find employment. And that was my case. I spent a year sending out resumes, I think hundred and forty one resumes to try to get a job I couldn't get employed. And part of what I was saying is that I'd sort of hoped to like fill the life. I had a lot of money saved. I paid for that wedding cash. We were going to try to buy a house. One of the things that was uh, uh, it was going on is when I was working in Jersey City, my lease was running out. I was trying to renew my lease with a crazy car. Oh, I remember God. this woman was showing my house on my wedding day. Right? right? She brought people into my home on our wedding day to show it. Jeez. But, so I told her, you know, I said, hey, I want to renew the lease. And she said, well, you lost your job, didn't you? Yeah. And my wife actually had lost her job at the morgue, too, which we didn't cover. But Elmas was 
same situation that you had. And she's like, I'm not comfortable with that. You need to move. And I said, well, I have money. I'll, I'll pay you the year up front. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm not comfortable with that. You need to move. So now you have two unemployed people. I have money and I have credit, but I can't get an apartment because I don't have a job. And she doesn't have a job. So now what do you do? Right? So now what do you do? So like, we had, we were sort of set to try to figure something out. So we figured we put stuff into storage and I moved to Brooklyn to where her parents live. It's close to the city for a commute for me to do interviews, I thought at the time and, you know, and see what the case would be. And we moved into our childhood bedroom, which was, I mean, smaller than the room that we're in right now. Yeah. And, uh, the same size. You said I'm, you had 20 more rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that, you know, whatever, you're going to say it's maybe a, a 10 by 8 room, you know, that I was living out of her, you know, her bedroom. And that, oh, I did that for a year. And then basically as it ate through our savings, and that was the hard part too, is that, like, I was prideful. I mean, like, I've worked hard to pay bills and to have the money. And in other words, I didn't want to, you know, coast in any, in any sort of case. I mean... And slowly but surely, I could not replenish what I had worked so hard to save, which basically, you know, practically drove us out of cash. And that's sort of what drove us from New York. Right. So, 15 years later, and I know they're talking now more about, like, post-traumatic stress from that, you know, um, and maybe never really dealing with that, but what would you say has kind of gotten you through all the times of these past 15 years after, after this happened? I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't think it's that, it's that cheerful story. I mean, so I was very disconnected. Maybe I could, like Nick said, I sort of compartmentalized things for a while. And it's probably like, I don't know, 2003, 2004, I'm unsure. We had moved here. I couldn't find a well-paying job. I was working for $8 an hour. In other words, so I went from making six figures to trying hard to make 20 grand. And But we were getting life together. I had creditors on my back because I couldn't pay the bills. I'd moved away from all my family and so on, but we were starting to try to build a life. And somebody asked me to tell a story like I did today about what happened. And uh, I told it and I started to cry. And I couldn't stop crying. And I had to leave work. And uh, the company at that point was working for AOL at that point had sent me to a psychologist. And she's like, it's you know, post-traumatic stress. What happens is that put yourself in survival mode to do what you needed to do for your life, for your wife, and everything along the lines to get along, and finally to the point where you felt comfortable enough to say, oh, and take that breath, is when all the emotion hits you. For myself, I could say is, I read everything and watch everything that I possibly can on it. But every day on the 11th, I lock myself away from the world. I don't watch TV, I don't get on the internet, I don't read the newspaper, and I buy a handful of booze. And I drink or I'll, I'll watch a DVD or something like this. And I try to forget about what the day is and everything along the lines. And that's the only thing that's gotten me through. And I can say this year, 15 years later, is probably the first year that it's even the slightest bit easier than it's been before. 
How about you, Nick? You uh, know, a- after all this time, uh, you know, what do you feel has gotten you past that? You, you know, I know that you said um, that a couple of years ago you wouldn't even be able to talk about it. So what do you think has helped uh, almost heal you to a point? <laughs> Allegedly. Contrary to the way Charlie feels about this year, this year was harder for me for some reason. Um, I was at the gym yesterday in the morning, and this incredible wave of sadness washed over me, like crippling. I had to sit down. Um, don't know where it came from uh, because, um, well, before I went into the gym, same thing I did last year, and they were very cooperative. Um, I told them who, who I was and what I used to do, and I asked if they could put all the TVs on ESPN for the next hour or so. And they were very accommodating, and they, they took care of that. So there wasn't anything on TV or anything that triggered it. I just was walking from one machine to another, and it just like this sadness just enveloped me, and I had to sit down. Um, and I, like I said, I don't know where it came from. It lasted a couple of minutes, and then I just moved on. Um, I just, um, I don't know. I've lost so many close friends that I don't know. People that just left a void. And that's really hard for me to get past. Um, I, I was thinking of my, just thinking of my one friend yesterday, Terry Farrell, um, who was in Rescue 4. And there was a time in the early 80s, like, I was really down on my luck, unemployed, had nothing going on. And Terry managed a, a BP station at the time. And didn't have any openings, had no, wasn't hired or anything, but gave me a job. Um, because, you know, I needed money. <laughs> I, I needed right. it. Um, that, was, that was just the kind of guy he was. And I, just, I found myself thinking about him a lot over the um, I, I thought moving a thousand miles away and all these years later that it would get easier, but for some reason it's just not. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't explain it. Maybe it's, it's something in my DNA, um, but it's, um, it, it's just as difficult now as, as, it, as it always has been. Um, Do I know prior to recording here we were talking a little bit um would you like or be able to share um you'd mentioned not being able to talk about it mm-hmm. and then there was kind of a situation right. um where it kind of opened you up to speaking about it would you share that yeah absolutely um our uh, teammate andrew coughlin who i think uh, you'll agree is one of the most awesome human beings on the face of this planet um when i was a volunteer in the wounded warrior project talk program during the training um, Andrew came in and, and shared his story. And I, I remember just sitting there and thinking how comfortable he seemed in front of a room full of strangers sharing this very personal, very hard story. Um, and, you know, I came out of that experience saying, wow, if he can talk about that, then I think maybe it's time for me to start talking about this. Um, and that's what, what triggered me to finally go and, and talk to somebody and, uh, 
like I said, you know, before we started recording it, I'm so glad I did. I mean, it was, you know, for lack of a better term, it was an emotional bowel movement. <laughs> just, <laughs> just getting it out there, it was just like this, I don't know, just like huge, I mean, it's, I know it's a cliche, it's a huge weight off my shoulders, you know, but suddenly I felt like it was, it was gone or it was somebody else helped me with that load, you know, it just, um, and then, you know, as... <laughs> No pun intended with the bowel movement and somebody <laughs> helping you with that load, huh? I, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. I forgot. You mean the load That's right. Sorry, I forgot about it. Um, it's good. It's good kind of phrase. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's made it a little bit easier to deal with, being able to talk about it. Um, and I'm a lot more comfortable talking about it. I mean, there are times, I mean, as, as you saw earlier, where I just, I stop and pause and, and some things are difficult to talk about but um, you know, oh, I would say for the last three or four years it's gotten a little bit easier and plus you know a lot of it has to do with the work that we do or the work that I do um, and, and hearing you know stuff that other men and women have gone through right. and you know they're out there trying to deal and trying to so I'm you know I need to stay strong for them too so uh, you know that has a lot to do with it you know being working at Wounded Warrior Project nice So, I know you guys talk about the difficulty in, in uh, being able to share about uh, that day and, and, and so on. Um, what coping mechanisms have you taken on, like, to try and help you, like, get to this point where you are now? Like, you heard somebody's story, but what are the activities hobbies have you taken on you think as a result to try and help you get through some of this stuff well for me um it's actually been somewhat difficult um because before i mean i was like an avid golfer like come home from work have dinner run out play nine hole like i would do that five nights a week i mean i just love the game i can't get that passion back i i mean i play once i'm out there i enjoy myself but all because you had to pay that $10. <laughs> <laughs> I could be. But I, I just um, I just can't get that passion back. Mm -hmm. the, 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 I don't know. I, I hope someday I do. <laughs> nice set of golf clubs sitting in my garage. Um, and, you know, for a time, I mean, that was all. I was all about golf. I mean, it was just like nonstop. And now I just, you know, if I never picked up a club again, I, I give a shit. Um, as far as, like, coping, I told you I, I dabbled in stand-up comedy. Uh, so I saw, you know, some Iraq and Afghanistan vets on TV that, that did it as a coping mechanism, so I gave that a try. That was helpful. Um, so that was a bucket list thing. I, pro I probably won't do that uh, again. Um, and I play, uh, I play guitar, not as much as I'd like to, but uh, when I'm, like, really, really, really in a funk, I'll plug in and crank it up and close the window so I don't disturb my neighbors. Nice. <laughs> nice. With canvas uh, or without? Huh? With or without canvas? <laughs> with or without what? With or without cannabis. That's only to help me sleep, Jake. And for glaucoma. How about you, Charlie? I mean, in comparison, I'm a lazy bastard. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say that I can't say that I have anything that I go to that I do differently to to help me cope or anything along the lines of that. I mean, like I said, as I just I lock it down. I'm always the type of person that'll just bottle it up to the point that it comes out, and that's 
on occasion, but typically it's not a very regular thing, just once a year. Maybe occasionally when I start to talk about it, something will come out. But I, I, I just, you know, I just try to keep my head up, and the idea is, you know, to keep, you know, moving on. There's a lot of downsides to that, and there are a lot of downward spirals along the way, and just keep trying to keep my head positive to look up and you know make more out of life. And that didn't, you know, that didn't define a lot of things. To, you know, sort of start over and make a new. I mean, that's as much as really I can say about that. Do so. From the both of you speaking, what would you, because it sounds like things that used to give you pleasure, you don't get pleasure in anymore. Is is it a daily feeling that you guys feel like that? Um, if so, how do you get out of that quote-unquote funk I mean, for me, um, like I said, for me it was it was golf, you know, and um, I would love to get that passion back to, to play the game. I mean, listen, the, I was not any good playing stretch of the imagination, but I just like being out there. Um, Is it something conscious though that's in your head that's like I do not like, like no this interest, anymore? Like no interest, you know, like on a Saturday afternoon, fifteen years ago, I might oh I got time and run to the range hit a bucket of ball. Now it doesn't even enter my mind. Have you since then gone out to the range? Oh yeah, yeah. I played a couple of times since I lived here, and I went on a golf outing with uh, my brother-in-law okay. here. You know, we played some rounds. Like I said, once I'm out there, I'm enjoying myself. I, I, I do enjoy it, but to to get that spark, that initial kick. Yeah, I mean, because I I would have no problem, you know, every night just running out to a course <coughs> to play and get paired up with whoever. I mean, that was half the fun. You know, you meet, you know, making new friends each time you're out there. Um, but like I said, it's just not anything. It's not anything I think of anymore, and you know, it's a shame. <laughs> but. So, this, the magnitude of of the stories that you guys are telling, and your experiences, and still 15 years later, being just, it's it's palpable. Right, and I know that when listeners uh, hear your guys hear the stories that you guys are telling, um, and specific to that day, and then the following week, and, and to 15 years later, um, it's going to be very impactful. And for those people that are having trouble telling their stories, like you talked about two years ago, you wouldn't have been able to sit down, Charlie. You said you're doing this because Jeff is here. Um, how do you get somebody that had a similar experience to kind of take an another step forward and maybe open up just a little bit more? What kind of words of, of, of advice would you give to somebody that is maybe not so ready to open up yet, but it's been this amount of time and you guys might have something that you can share that's like, hey, I tried this and it worked for me, or this happened and, it, and I started to open up a little bit more. And as a result, I started to feel a little bit better, better maybe. Is there anything that you guys could share with some of them? Um, yeah, I would say just talk about it. You know, as, as simple as that sounds and as hard as it may be, uh, and I'm, I'm you know, a perfect example of that, just 
talk about it. Just start talking about it, even if it's only little bits of it. Um, there are people who will listen to you. You know, you have friends, you have family. Um, just, just talk about it. Um, it. It's helped me. I know it's that other people that deal with similar uh, trauma. It, it helps them too. Um, I know, you know, it's part of our Project Odyssey. We talk about journaling and, and writing your experiences down. Um, just, just get it out there. there. There are people who will listen to you, and just get it out there. There are people that want to listen to you and want to help. Now, and the best analogy I can give you is this relates directly to what he said, is the worst wound, and every so often the bandage has to come off, and it's got to be clean, and it's got to get a little bit of air, and it's got to get wrapped up again. And that's the way that you do it. You tie it up too long, you leave it alone, it gets infected. Case, it's about that part of conversation. Which even part of conversation, whether you got to go about 2% of it or 5% or 20 or 50 or whatever the case, you just need to start expressing it because part of the problem is if you don't talk about it, you don't get what's there. And that's, you have to sort of come to terms somehow in your own head and find someone that you trust in that case that will listen in an unbiased way. It doesn't have to be a professional, it can be your best friend, it can be a parent, be your spouse can be anybody in that case, but you need to really get out whichever part of it that you feel that you need to at that time. That's the only way you're ever going to get. <coughs> Did you, either of you, have anything else that you wanted to share about uh, that day that you wanted to tell anybody, um, or is there anything missing at this moment? that you guys wanted to share? I mean, just the, the example I saw of, of what this country's all about when the shit hits the fan, for lack of a better term. Um, like I said, when the attack happened, so many things got put into place immediately. I mean, military and, and police and fire, everything. And it really gave me the sense that, okay, you know, this is a horrible thing that's happening, but there are resources in place and people trained that are going to be able to deal with it. So just, and we bounce back. We bounce back big time. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've seen the, the new, uh, the Liberty Tower down there, and we bounce back big time. And I love that it's only one tower, which is kind of like saying, <laughs> 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 uh, And once again, I guess something along the lines to what he said, you know, on more of a personal basis, a lot of people let their problems get them down and feel like there's a level of hopelessness that I was great at for years and I lost that. I had a lot of friends and I lost that. I had good earnings and I lost that. You know, I had a large amount of money banking and I lost that. I moved away from my family and I lost that. I got divorced as a result and I lost that. I went bankrupt and I divorced and I lost that. I didn't have a bed to sleep in. I slept on the floor. Sometimes I had to work extra hours so I have enough money to pay the rent and eat in that sort of case. And I hear I am today persistence and it's not letting anything get you down it's just you know the ideas you just trudge through and it's a temporary condition and you know in other words life is what you make out of it and so on I'm not in the same situation that I was at that point but I've done a lot of rebuilding and the point is just being persistent and keeping my head up I know we're going to come back so 
no matter how bad you think it is, you can prove it. Awesome. Well, uh, I know that we would love to continue to, to have this conversation and we want to have them back for a live studio audience. We got so we got to have you guys back for a live studio audience where you guys are are in a room with us and we do another podcast together. And uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, Dragon Con or whatever Comic Con or whatever it is. We'll talk about we'll talk about Nick's uh, short lived comedy career and uh, by, my own choice. <laughs> by, cho- <laughs> by choice by choice by um, choice. But we're gonna get ready to wrap this episode up. And uh, we do that two things. We got our beast mode moment. So the beast mode moment today um, is really, uh, I mean, just a reflection of what Charlie just spoke about. Um, and, and, and ripping the Band-Aid off, cleaning it up, putting it back on, and getting a little bit stronger each time. Uh, so the beast mode moment today, courtesy of Team Grasshopper. <laughs> Uh, is be strong so that others may become stronger. And I thought we had some great examples here today. Um, Charlie talked about persistence. Uh, Nick talked about going home, cleaning up, and going right back out there and helping all his brothers and sisters out. Um, And I thought that that is what resonated with me today, and that's why that's the Beast Mode moment. Now... I don't even know if we're ready because we get to this point in the show every time for Jeff's joint and Jeff takes at least a good three minutes to get prepared. But I hope that he's a little more prepared this time around uh, with Jeff's joint where he uh, pretty much ties the show all together in, in a song. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, that Jeff's joint is on cue right now. Hold up. Hold up. Well, maybe not. not. Hey, you guys know how we roll. Like, there's no editing here. There's no cutting. There's no splicing. There's none of that. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is raw. This is what you get, baby. As high budget as we can be. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff's joint. Jeff's joint. Tell us why. It's a Stevie Ray kind of day. Um, why that song? Because I was crying like a little baby a few minutes ago. Uh, all I kept thinking of was how blue the sky was that day in 2001. To which made me think of the blues, which made me think of a Stevie Ray kind of podcast today. So, uh, before we sign off, I would like to ask you guys, uh, I know, Nick, you said you lost 
a couple of people. I don't know, Charlie, if you did as well, uh, if you'd like to share their names. Terrence P. Farrell, that's P4. Uh, Terry McShane, who was one of my sergeants and then uh, went over to the fire department. Uh, Tommy Langone, who was one of my uh, colleagues in the 45th Precinct in the Bronx, got me my first, or helped me get my first arrest in the Bronx. Um, Ron Kerwin, from the fire department, uh, he was in my eighth grade uh, metal shop class. He used to take my lunch money quite often. And uh, I'm sure there are people I'm forgetting, but uh, those are the four. Oh, and, and Maura Smith. Made the police academy. Uh, she was uh, the only female officer that, that we lost that we lost that day. Sort of really lost throughout my career. Um, and I think that's what comes to mind right now. Oh, and Brian Hickey. Sorry. I'll say I'll say that's something I don't want to talk about right now. Okay. Uh, I'd like to mention two names: uh, Sammy Salvo and Robert Spear Jr. Well. I think I speak on behalf of uh, Jeff and all of the listeners who will eventually listen to this when uh, we say thank you guys for being here. Um, we always tell our guests that we love them. And uh, I love you guys. Thank you for being here. Um, it was a pleasure to talk with you and laugh with you and, uh, and hear your stories. And we're honored to have you. And thank you for everything that you did and that you continue to do including sharing these stories right now because it's definitely going to leave an impact. So we appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, that's been Beauty and the Beast Mode. I am Yeye Martinez. This is a Big Jeff. For Charlie and Nick, see you next time. Be good to one another. Peace.